What's good, ladies, gentlemen, those beyond the binary, poets, perverts, explorers of all kinds, trash bags, bagger vants, Vince Neal, kneeling caps, walking to busted mouth on Q4 Radio, a show about rock and roll, sticking it to the man and your big stupid feelings, streaming around the world every single Monday from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. on Apple Radio, the TuneIn app, 1680 a.m. in Chicago, and of course, QUE4.org. Shots, I'm J.W. Basillo, your host. As always, happy Monday. I hope it's going well for you. You deserve a nice day. You deserve nice things in general. You just do. Accept that. Tell yourself that. You don't deserve more than other people, but you deserve nice things. Damn it, we could all have decent things. Anyway, I'm flying solo today in studio. I'm going to be bringing you some uh, fine records and uh, a long-form essay, the final and shocking conclusion of my thoughts and recent experience in the medical marijuana pantheon. Uh, Just general, you know, all kinds of drug stuff. So if you're not interested in that sort of thing, uh, this is not your episode. Also, big shout out to uh, the homie Katie Caden, one of of the all-time favorite guests uh, on Busted Mouth here. Young Caden. We'll be on The Voice tonight on NBC. Airhorn. I didn't. Uh, I don't have that app uh, with me today. But anyway, uh, Young Caden will be on The Voice tonight. That's exciting. I'm. I'm so happy uh, for Katie. Finally, I have a reason to not feel guilty while watching the show because I'm always like, I. I was just looking at it. I feel guilty watching it. I shouldn't. I think the guilty pleasures is a stupid concept. But anyway, I do always kind of go like. I don't know. Couldn't I be better? Couldn't I spend my time on something better? But now I have a, a reason because my friend is on. Uh, thank you, uh, all of you. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, those of you listening in the future know that it's not Monday, but uh, I don't know. Hulu, that business. Go get up on the Hulu or whatever it is. Uh, find it. All of these these poets, perverts, and explorers are, are proud of you, Katie Caden. Uh, give them hell. We're, we're happy for you. We really, really are. Uh, speaking of which, I would like uh, your feedback, dear listeners. That's right. I need your help. I've created what's called the Busted Mouth Listener Poll. Whoo! Clever name. Uh, Busted Mouth Listener Poll. Just a few questions that will help me shape the direction of the show in the coming months. So you've probably noticed, those of you that that listen uh, loyally, a lot of things have been changing in my life and with uh, Busted Mouth in general in the last couple months. And I want to be more um, deliberate in my actions and uh, and and you all giving me your feedback can really help that I believe that that you all have some stake in this show uh, albeit small and, and your voice can be helped used to help me kind of shape the thing that's happening so if you've never listened before today or uh, welcome by the way uh, but if you've never listened before today or if you've if you've heard every single episode from the very very beginning I am humbly asking for your help go to bustedmouth.com fill out the poll it's gonna take you like less than two minutes and it will mean the world to me. Bustedmouth.com. Fill out the poll. Do the thing. Help your friend uh, make a better show for you and for me. And now, some rock and roll. Show in which I talked about Reefer Madness, my own 
I refer to it as reefer madness. Uh, but it was my, you know, my own story, my own feelings about about cannabis. And as uh, you know, I've I've kind of come out recently as a as a cannabis uh, medical, specifically a medical cannabis advocate, but a cannabis advocate in general. Uh, something I'm starting to talk about publicly more frequently because I just got to a place in my life where I went to hell with it. I don't care. I just want all my business on the street, and that's a piece of my business. This is my life. Um, so okay. So before we get started, just know that you're strapping in for a, a longer story. It's a longer essay. But uh, I'm doing it for you. Before walking into the cannabis doctor's office, I stopped and triple checked that I was in the right place. Check this is a residential street. I checked that this is a house. I checked there is no signage on this house. But hey, here we are. And it can't be any worse than two days ago when I hustled downtown to get to my doctor's appointment on time, only to find that the building in question was less a doctor's office and more an open medical concept with no receptionist or desk or staff or doctor present. Never mind that just two minutes ago, I received a string of text messages from the very medical professional in question saying something to the effect of, oh my God, it was so crazy. Our whole staff had emergencies on the day that you had your appointment and we all had to go. All of us. It was crazy. Can we reschedule you for another day and take your money? And I wish I was making this up, but this is just kind of how it has been trying to get a medical cannabis card. Even trying to get weed legally feels like meeting a guy in a parking lot. I've heard that no doctor wants to be associated with marijuana, that they don't want the stigma of prescribing marijuana attached to their medical practice, and they don't want it to come back on them should the you know thing become illegal later in the future. And if it were me, I'd much rather have cannabis attached to my name than Oxycontin, but that's just me. I'm weird, and I'm not a doctor, and I would definitely be in the minority based on what I see of doctors. However, the doctor that wrote me my actual prescription for cannabis is not that kind of doctor. So when I finally got to the door of this uh, house slash office, the sign was non-existent. It just didn't exist. But there was a blue post-it note on the doorknob that said, no need to ring the bell, just come on in. Smiley face. They drew the smiley face. They didn't write out smiley face. Anyway, I had made the appointment online the night before, right? It was just, I was amazed to get an appointment. But the appointment booking app was wide open. All times, all dates were here. Just fill out your name, click, point, come in. Now, right after hitting submit, my inbox buzzed with a new message. It was an email from the doctor. It said, please bring your ID. This appointment will cost $300. We do not accept insurance. Bring a laptop or tablet with you to help us process your state application. Now, that last part seemed a little curious. Why would I bring my own laptop? Don't they have their own computers? $300 and no insurance can buy you lots of computers, bruv. I understood what was going on once I entered the actual office. Online, I had requested the earliest possible appointment, but there were already dozens of people ahead of me in the office. All of them had laptops. They were spread out across the various seats and surfaces of the kitchenette slash living room in this rather lovely, by the way, lovely Wicker Park house. Three helpful women uh, who very quickly identified themselves as the staff, all of them carrying inside them this irresistible combination of effusive and tough strangely they constantly wove in and out of the prospective patients looking over their shoulders and pointing out where to click and how to fill out the online application uh answering questions etc etc there's a lot of touch and back rubs and positivity if i showed you just a still photo of the scene there's a high probability your first guess would be uh, i i don't know it's a bunch of young people working on a grassroots political campaign and you'd be wrong but also you kind of wouldn't And I didn't get but two steps in the door when one of the women of the staff looked up at me urgently, yet warmly, and said, "Uh, welcome, do you have an appointment? And I said, yes, I'm Joseph. Great, we got you. That was it. 
She scribbled my name on a clipboard while barely looking down and without ever taking her hand off of another patient's shoulder. And then she leaned in and said, okay, now make sure you check the box that says accept. And then she looks back up. Joseph, is it? Now, did you bring your laptop? Great. Go to the following website and just get started. I'll help you if you have any questions. And I had already started at home, not because I'm an overachiever, but, you know, I was... Just point of fact, mostly done. I'm an anxious planner. I, I've been out of cannabis for the last two days. I'm really committed to making this thing happen. Nothing was to impede my victory. Instead, I sat there anxious, taking note, watching as the factory was in full swing. People come in, they get out their devices, they submit credit card info to cover an application fee. The doctor calls next. The staff makes idle but invested chat with those waiting, but they're constantly in motion. They high-five, they swipe credit cards to cover a doctor visit. They ask questions. They say, you did it, as patients walk back out to the street. They high-five again. The particular doctor in question here, he doesn't care about the stigma, but he does run a cool shop. He doesn't care if he's the weed doctor. He's built his reputation on being the weed doctor. He's a nice guy with a good staff who ostensibly works out of this modest, yet very charming, multi-million dollar prime real estate home I would love to own. In the hour or so I was there, I estimate about 20 people came and went. 20 patients. And I started to think, what's $300 times 20 people per hour times five days per week times 48 weeks out of the year? And I got so curious, I grabbed a calculator. I'll spare you the trouble. It's $10 million. That's right. 10 million. And the doctor really was great. He he was he was very helpful. He didn't make me feel weird about the things we were talking about. He seemed excited about the virtual reality lounge that I mentioned. He was very turned on by the idea. He gave me his cell phone number. He insisted I take his cell phone number so that I could contact his attorney to get a license to consume THC on the premises when the state goes legal next year. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but he was like, "Yes, please do this." He also said the F word no fewer than 3 times and then apologized for the first two and then the third one he just like kind of went, "Yeah, this is how we talk now he's a millionaire immigrant who got stupid rich by gaming a broken system to provide a service and help people that want help you want to know what the american dream looks like he's in this very living room and no i'm not talking about the 50 year old tradesman on the couch next to me who's in a lot of pain and doesn't want his hmo neck doctor to try to give him any more of that stupid opioid shit his words not mine so how did we end up here how did we end up in this weird clandestine cloak and dagger medical operation well come with me as I take you on a reductive, yet brief, yet only somewhat copy-pasted from source and only vaguely competent journey through marijuana in the United States. Times. There's got to be a song. I'll put that in post. Anyway, so in the early days of uh, the colonizers, right, the old school white people colonizers, King James was all about that sticky green stuff, both the kind that made for excellent rope and especially the kind that made for excellent concert experiences. Hemp was one of the many products desired, taxed, and exported back across the pond. This isn't big news. It was also a huge cash crop domestically. Also not big news. It makes textiles, and it makes dinner with your in-laws more tolerable. We're in as a country. Did you know that the cannabis plant was on the original $10 bill? It was. I didn't know that, but it really was. And if you hadn't heard that before, it's because... Probably a bunch of uptight, square, Bible-thumping, would-be aristocrats scrubbed that info largely from our history books. And for what it's worth, history is always written by the winners, and the uptight, square, Bible-thumping, would-be aristocrats have been winning in this country for, for a long time. 
long time. And this wasn't always the case. In fact, as, as recently as 1850, as the dust settled on the Industrial Revolution, uh, cannabis dens were cannabis dens and, and buyers clubs and things like that were, were roughly as common in urban settings as, say, like microbreweries are today. Like you can't throw a rock without hitting a microbrewery. Uh, I'm told that in New York in, in the 1800s, that was kind of how pot clubs were. People couldn't get enough. And, and people couldn't get enough of everything, actually, around the time of, of the end of the Industrial Revolution. And, and they didn't have to because with manufacturing and printing and, and labeling just booming, they could get whatever they want. In every, in every corner apothecary, there was a swath of tonics and elixirs and, and, and drugs and, and beverages and foreign herbs and things that were made of secrets from the Far East or whatever. And just like today, most ingestible products purported to improve your life did roughly jack shit sadly though some actually were horribly unhealthy for human consumption because people that want to make a buck will people are dicks what are you going to do so uh with absent to limited regulation bad medicines became more and more commonplace pause for bad medicine joke enjoy the song in your head two one so in 1906 the government released the controlled pure food and drug act laying the groundwork for modern fda approval practices cannabis was still very much legal at this point with liquid thc tinctures like the brand name cannabis indica by the way that was the brand name um it was a, a very common drug prescribed by doctors for all kinds of ailments the same kind of stuff that they prescribe cannabis for now uh, in 1910, we saw the Mexican Revolution. Now, for those of you that don't watch the news, Mexico is a sovereign nation to our south. In fact, much of the U.S. used to be Mexico. And then we were all like, nope, this is ours now. And people who live in places that used to be Mexico can't get over that all these Mexicans are still on their land because they think borders are real. Anyway, in 1910, there was a revolution in said Mexico, which led to many Mexicans fleeing their homes in search of a safer and more prosperous life in a place that used to be Mexico but wasn't anymore those people were called immigrants and just like donald trump feared all along they brought drugs with them Nah, i'm just joshing it was already here it existed it grows in the ground and stuff now many mexicans however did bring with them the proclivity for consuming marijuana because it was a cheaper safer and more pleasurable alternative to alcohol weird how the more things change the more they stay the same huh kind of like how the racist politicians of the age blamed Mexicans for the downturn of the country and the decline of family values. Also, they're bringing drugs with them. The wacky tobacco they love to smoke. It makes them violent and sexual. We need to protect our white women from them. And since we're saving our legally sanctioned racism for Jim Crow, and we still need to hang on to it in the 40s for Japanese people, we must now remove marijuana from the equation. We'll call it loco weed because it looks like a weed and it makes Mexicans crazy for white women i'm foghorn leghorn or some guy playing colonel sanders look i get that i'm being satirical for effect but all of this is true these these things all actually happened this country was founded on the ideal that it's perfectly acceptable to subjugate people and oppress their rights in order to protect the lives and rights of wealthy white people making laws how is this refutable uh, and this is also why it's really hard for a lot of people in this country to equate the words America and great. So when they hear things like make America great again, they say things like it never really was because it was built on the backs of slaves. You know, weird facts. This sort of oppression has happened forever in this country, ever since it was ever since the country was settled. It, it has happened forever and it continues to happen. It's happening right now. If you don't see it happening right now, I've got an 
awesome timeshare I'd love to tell you about. Can I get your personal email? I digress. The first major blow to American cannabis occurred in 1925 when a bunch of men at the International Opium Convention, not as fun as it sounds, and I don't have time to get into it here, uh, they banned the international traffic of Indian hemp. So a bunch of guys got together, a bunch of hot dudes got together and said, no more, no more traffic of hemp across the ocean. We made this decree on your behalf without your consent. Indian hemp is the kind that contains THC. THC is uh, the chemical compound that gets you high. European hemp, however, was still legal. European hemp, of course, European white guy hemp, is the kind that does not get you high, but simply provides useful fibers with which to clothe the hardworking white man. I just love saying white. Anyway, the government launched this Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930. Here we are now. Indian hemp, 1925. By 1930, they launch a federal bureau. Oops, I see a trend happening. It's headed by Harry J. Anslinger. Fun name. Uh, as part of the government's broader push to outlaw all recreational drugs. It was just like, it was 1930, right? So it was like top of the depression. You see all this depression? It's because you had fun. We took your alcohol away and you still insisted on having fun. No more fun. Fun is killing this country. No, it did not have anything to do with capitalism or our insistence on corporate prosperity it was fun i tell you damn it fun no more fun for anyone until you're rich and then it's legal pretty much everything is legal when you're rich so harry anslinger which is definitely not pronounced harry asslicker because that would be childish and i wouldn't want to besmirch the good name of people doing the lord's work by providing rim jobs like real heroes Anyway, Anslinger both publicly and in Congress and in Congress claimed that cannabis caused people to commit violent crimes and act, quote, irrationally and overly sexual. Those are words that a grown man said. Anyway, uh, anybody who smokes weed knows that that's ridiculous and that's absurd. So the FBN, which is a government agency, produced propaganda films promoting Anslinger's views. And now it was really a gift for us in the future. That's what it was. It was a time capsule because we have now the gift of things like reefer madness. Uh, by the way, go to YouTube and look up reefer madness. It does for marijuana what big haired reactionaries did for Satanism in the 80s. It's hilarious and stupid. And it's even more fun when you're smoking a joint. Anyway. In 1938, the Federal Pure Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act was born, and with it, the FDA, the Federal Dog Food and Drug Administration. That's what it was. Food and Drug Administration. Yes, that checks out. Right before that, the Marijuana Tax Act uh, effectively made possession or transfer of marijuana illegal throughout the United States under federal law, uh, with the exception of medical and industrial uses. And how they did this was through they imposed an excise tax on the sale of hemp. And the American Medical Association, the AMA, that is still alive today, opposed the act because the tax came down on physicians prescribing cannabis. It came down on pharmacists selling cannabis. And it came down on medical cannabis cultivation and, and manufacturing in general. So since the federal government had no authority because of the Tenth Amendment, they were not allowed to regulate medicines. Uh, the only way to viably legislate marijuana without outlawing it in totality was to impose a tax. How very American of us. So the decision of the United States Congress to pass the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 was based on poorly attended hearings and poorly written reports based on questionable studies. Shocking. I know. So the FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, drafted a legislative plan for Congress trying to get a new law. Right. So the head of the FBN, Harry Anslinger, Harry, it's so hard not to say it the other way, ran a campaign against marijuana. He goes full bore in for a penny, in for a pound, put the pedal down. He even got William Randolph Hearst and his empire of newspapers in on the act, right? So they used uh, his whole family of, of press uh, to demonize the cannabis plant. 
and spread public perception that there were connections between cannabis and violent crime. And as we know, Hearst hated everything that wasn't rich and white, and he had to hedge his bets against hemp replacing wood pulp in the manufacturing of paper anyway, so really, he was just too excited to be involved. Now, never one to shy away from hypocrisy, a couple years later, the United States Department of Agriculture produced a short documentary during World War II to inform and encourage farmers to grow hemp. It was called, wait for it, Hemp for victory it's illegal and will make you rape white women but we need it for the war <laughs> much like women are stupid and physically inferior but we need people to run the machine so go get them rosie the riveter you can do it until the war is over and then back to the kitchen with you because we're monsters uh so in 1942 yep that's right after the philippines fell to japanese forces the department of agriculture and the army got together and they decided they wanted to urge farmers to grow hemp fiber and uh they they issued tax stamps directly to the farmers so without any change to the actual marijuana act itself over 400,000 acres of hemp were cultivated between 42 and 45 meanwhile we were locking away japanese people in internment camps but that doesn't matter we have to grow this hemp so 400,000 acres of hemp between 42 and 45 the last commercial hemp fields were planted in wisconsin of all places in 1957 saying these are things that were true uh and then a number of years later i think before yeah right, right before the end of the war uh fioretto laguardia who was new york's mayor at the time it was a strong opponent to the marijuana tax act for obvious reasons uh he started what he called the laguardia commission way before airports started the laguardia commission and then yeah it was 1944 he contradicted the early reports of addiction madness and overt sexuality because those things were founded in complete and utter bullshit so scientists doing wacky science stuff refuted all claims and said that all of the scary things that ass liquor and his cronies made up were complete fucking bullshit still no progress they went in front of congress and everybody just went eh, yeah but we got a war to worry about so things continue the 1950s come in everybody loves the wholesome 1950s and then ooh, hippies come along and now it's 1969 and we have a decision uh, of leary versus the united states the decisions in the u.s supreme court right and it held the Marijuana Tax Act to be unconstitutional because it violated the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So basically, by paying the tax, you're admitting to having traffic to plant, and the government wasn't very understanding about such things, even if they have your money. Does it seem a little convoluted? It was. It was like uh, you have to pay the tax in order to use the cannabis, but the cannabis is illegal, so it's illegal for you to buy the cannabis, and the only way to get the cannabis and make it legal is to pay the tax, but in order to pay the tax, you have to essentially admit that you broke federal law absolutely convoluted ridiculous so of course the u.s supreme court uh, declares it unconstitutional good that seems like a good thing however in response to the lawsuit congress passes the controlled substance act um, which was a part of the comprehensive drug abuse prevention and control act of 1970 that was fun to say out loud so it repeals the marijuana tax act and uh, it officially prohibits the use of cannabis for any purpose, but also eliminated mandatory minimum sentences and reduced simple drug possession of all drugs from a felony to a misdemeanor. So one step forward, two steps back. The real mackerel in the air vent, however, was under the Controlled Substances Act, cannabis was assigned a Schedule One classification. Schedule One deems it to have a high potential for abuse and no accepted medical use, thereby prohibits even medical use of the drug in totality. The classification has remained since, and despite multiple efforts to reschedule it, it's never happened. It's still a Schedule One. Other drugs in the Schedule One, for example, include heroin, LSD, peyote, and EDM. 
1973, Richard Nixon proposed the creation of a single federal agency to enforce federal drug laws. As a result, we created the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. You may know them as the dickheads and windbreakers that kick in people's doors and whatnot on cops or wherever you're watching things. But at least now we have a super agency to thwart drugs permanently because that'll totally work. Now, while we're here, it's important for me to point out one of the big linchpins in the legalization of drugs in general, but specifically the legalization of cannabis here in this country. The big linchpin is Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was staunchly against drugs, he was staunchly against hippies, and he was staunchly against civil rights as a whole. So in 1971, Nixon launched this absolute epic failure that he called, wait for it, the war on drugs. Maybe you've heard of it. At this point, he pointed to drug abuse and said, this is public enemy number one. Drug use was public enemy Number one, but John Ehrlichman, who was Nixon's trusted personal counsel and assistant on domestic affairs, he revealed in 1994 that the real public enemy wasn't really drugs. It wasn't even drug abuse. The true enemies of the Nixon administration were the leftists against the war and black people in general. And the war on drugs was designed as a policy specifically to wage a war on those two groups. In an article in the April 2016 issue of The Atlantic, author and reporter Dan Baum explained how, quote, John Ehrlichman, the Watergate co-conspirator, unlocked for me one of the great mysteries of modern American history. How did the United States entangle itself in a policy of drug prohibition that has yielded such misery and so few good results? So Baum goes on to say, Americans have been criminalizing psychoactive substances since San Francisco's anti-opium law of 1875, which was created to subjugate uh, Chinese immigrants and workers because Chinese people enjoyed opium, so let's make opium illegal. Anyway, that was mine, not his. Anyway, but it was first Ehrlichman's boss, Richard Nixon, who declared the first war on drugs in 1971 and sent the country on a wildly punitive and counterproductive path it still pursues. At the time, I was writing a book about the politics of drug prohibition. I started to ask Ehrlichman a series of earnest, wonky questions that he impatiently waved away. Quote, You want to know what it was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or against blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. End quote. Baum goes on to say, Nixon's invention of the war on drugs as a political tool was cynical, but every president since, Democrat and Republican alike, has found it equally useful for one reason or another. Meanwhile, the growing cost of the drug war is now impossible to ignore. Billions of dollars wasted, bloodshed in Latin America and on the streets of our own cities, and millions of lives destroyed by, by a draconian punishment that doesn't end at the prison gate. One of every eight black men has been disenfranchised because of a felony conviction. <sighs> So reading those paragraphs will tell you almost everything you need to know about partisan politics and overall government in America. Nixon started it, and every JAG elected since, including the ones you like, have sat back and watched the incarceration rate climb, they've watched prisons get overcrowded, and they've watched your tax dollars get proudly, proudly flushed down the proverbial toilet. And now, there are way more drugs than there have ever been. Isn't that fun? Between 1973 and 77, however, 11 states moved to decriminalize marijuana possession. 
But in 1977, President Jimmy Carter was inaugurated partially on a campaign platform that included marijuana decriminalization. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Uh, the same year, that October, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize possession of up to an ounce of marijuana for personal use. I'll repeat that. In 1977, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize possession of up to an ounce of marijuana for personal use. But that didn't stick, certainly not with the increasing push by evangelical Christian lobbyists looking to spurn the decadent 1970s and return to a more wholesome America and their eventual backing of select conservative politicians funded by the family, like, say, I don't know, golden boy, former actors from California. <clears throat> Speaking of your boy... Under the Reagan administration, while Ronnie's boys were sweeping AIDS under the rug and using cocaine to fund Contras, all true, the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984 created sentencing created the Sentencing Commission, which established mandatory sentencing guidelines. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 86 reinstated mandatory prison sentences, including large-scale cannabis distribution. Later, an amendment created the Three Strikes Law, which imposed mandatory 25-year imprisonment for repeated serious crimes, including certain drug offenses, and allowed the death penalty to be used against, quote, drug kingpins. Kingpin, if you didn't know, has no official designation in his relative to a case, and entirely up to the whim of a judge. The Solomon-Lautenberg Amendment, shortly thereafter in 1990, urged states by way of holding their highway money hostage to suspend a driver's license of anyone who commits any drug offense. And these laws impose mandatory driver's license suspensions of at least six months for persons committing a drug offense of any kind, including simple possession, uh, regardless of whether or not any motor vehicle was involved. And as of 2019, six states still have these laws. Six different states still have these so-called smoke-a-joint, lose-your-license laws in effect in 2019. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch of rich racist men and uptight lawmakers vilified cannabis and ruined the fun and personal liberty for all of us. We all know of the firmly entrenched incentive for the government of this, the land of the free, to keep our increasingly private prisons full and that the people of color and poor people in general are disproportionately filling these prisons. We all know about that. That's boring. How did the medical thing happen? All right, calm down. Funny you should ask, because during the late 1970s and into the early 80s, a number of states actually passed past legislation addressing medical use of cannabis. New Mexico, shout out to the 505. I know it's not all in New Mexico, but that's the only one I know. New Mexico was the first in 1978, and by the end of 1982, over 30 states had followed suit. Good things to know. Following the passage of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention Act of 1970, a commission was formed under the decree of the act to study the rising use of cannabis in America and subsequently make policy recommendations about the rising use of, cannab of cannabis here in America. Uh, this commission was formally no informally known as the Schaefer Commission. So the Schaefer Commission comes back and determines in 1972 uh, in the report they filed to the president and in front of Congress... They filed a report that says the societal harms caused by cannabis were limited at best, and they recommended removing criminal penalties for possession and distribution. Cool. Consequently, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws petitioned the DEA to remove cannabis from the list of Schedule One narcotics so it could be legally prescribed. Cool. Making progress. After a decade of legal battles in which the DEA, those jagoffs, refused to even consider the petition, public hearings were finally held on the matter, and in September of 1988, after two years of hearings, the DEA chief administrative law judge ruled in favor of moving cannabis to a Schedule II classification, 
finding that, quote, marijuana in its natural form is one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man. The evidence in this record clearly shows that marijuana has been accepted as capable of relieving the distress of a great number of very ill people and doing so with safety under medical supervision. It would be unreasonable, arbitrary, and capricious for the DEA to continue to stand between those sufferers and the benefits of this substance in light of the evidence of this record. This was the DEA chief administrative law judge. But Young's ruling was a non-binding recommendation. It was rejected then by DEA Administrator John Lawn. 1994 U.S. Court of Appeals ruling upheld the DEA's final decision because we can't have nice things. Do you understand? The DEA got together and they're like, okay, all these commissions have brought us all this evidence and we have ruled and recommended that we actually declassify this as a schedule one go back to a schedule two it can make it medically prescribed we'll look in look into the decriminalization of the recreation thing you know basically where we are now this was forever ago this was what 30 years ago now uh and uh, yeah never really stuck because we can't have nice things by the fall of 1998, California voters had approved Proposition 215 to legalize medical cannabis, while similar measures were up for vote in several more states. Following the California Proposition 215, the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative was created to, quote, provide seriously ill patients with a safe and reliable source of medical cannabis information and patient support. Of course, the backlash is quickly afoot by the anti-drug conservatives. A House joint resolution comes up. So then uh, the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Co-op comes back and goes, oh, yeah, well, fuck you. We are created to provide seriously ill patients with a safe and reliable source of medical cannabis information and patient support. So then uh, the U.S. government goes, well, then, okay, fine. Our move, fuck you. Uh, We're going to sue the co-op for violating federal laws created by the Controlled Substances Act. Then in 2001, the Supreme Court ruled that federal anti-drug laws do not permit an exception for medical cannabis. Uh, They rejected the common law medical necessity defenses to crimes enacted under the Controlled Substances Act because Congress concluded cannabis had, quote, no currently accepted medical use when the act was originally passed in 1970. Come on, people. 1970. They form a committee. The committee comes back and goes, hey, it's been two years. We've looked into it, and we don't see any real risk here. And then the the government says, fuck that. We're keeping shit the way it is. So then for 16 more years, they fight, and they fight, and they fight, and they finally bring to the floor, hey, we think medical cannabis needs to go. And we voted on it, and we the people have stated as much. We've got doctors on our team. We've got uh, buyers co-ops. We've got ready to go. We're just going to do this. Can you just allow us to have medical clearance? By the way, here are hundreds of documents and recommendations that all say that we should remove this as the Schedule One narcotic. And they come back, and they say, nope. In 1970, before any of that research was done and before any of that stuff was filed, it said it had no medical use. So we deem now it is still 1970 and it still has no medical use. Come on, people. No medical use. None whatsoever. Here's a fun twist. In 1975, there was this cat named Robert Randall, and he was busted for growing and cultivating cannabis plants. Growing his own plants, getting high on his own supply, Randall discovered that cannabis relieved the symptoms of his glaucoma. Shocking, I know, we've heard this before. And thus, he employed a medical necessity defense at his own trial to justify his use of the plants. Consequently, charges against Randall were dropped, and as a result of his ensuing petition, filed with the FDA, Randall became the first person in history to receive cannabis from the federal government in 1976. Wait, 
You're thinking, the government had cannabis? Despite it being evil and dangerous to society? Surely you jest! I do not jest. The real fun part of this whole thing is that after the government eventually cut off Randall's supply, he filed a suit to have it restored. And he won, setting in motion the creation of the Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program. That's what they called it, the Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program. Uh, shortly right after that, they created a whole the whole program just for him. And the program allowed patients with serious medical conditions to receive a regular supply of cannabis from the actual government. Sounds cool, right? Sadly, only 13 patients ended up participating in the study due to a very complicated and drawn-out application process. Stop me if this sounds familiar. So the Compassionate IND program was closed to new patients in 92 uh, due to this big flood of application from AIDS patients, which no one, of course, wants to touch. And the hardcore anti-drug, anti-gay Bush administration wasn't about to let that happen. So 28 applications that had already been approved were immediately rescinded. And the original 13 patients who were already receiving cannabis were allowed to do so going forward, but no new people would be added to the study. So they created the study. It worked. Uh, They showed that there were effects. They were studying it. Everything was going well. And then a bunch of age age patients want to get involved, and everyone just went like, nah, let's just shut it down. So as of 2016, most of the original patients had, uh, had, had passed on. They just died. But at least two were still known to be receiving cannabis from the federal government. Two people, the, last, the most recent figures I could find, in 2016, two people were still receiving weed from the federal government. Play on, player. Okay, so let's wind back some of the game footage here just to review what we've already done. To this point, a multitude of doctors, lawmakers, judges, just plain anyone who has used the drug have all gone on record and deemed cannabis low risk for centuries. It's been considered low risk for a very long time because it is low risk. The FDA accepted that marijuana has medical utility back in 1976 by the fact that they were supplying it. But courts still managed to dismiss its medical utility and considered it harmful, citing antiquated statutes as recently as 2016 hell as recently as last week this year illinois joined the legion of rational human beings by making marijuana fully legal starting january 2020 there'll still be a lot of restrictions but at least we'll no longer be one of those backward ass states like alabama or wisconsin Within a decade, I'm hopeful, I'm not necessarily optimistic, but I am hopeful that we will have gone full legal on a national level. I mean, how much evidence needs to exist to make that happen, really? And I get that that's rhetorical, because this is clearly not about evidence. I mean, we we know that the incarceration rate has gone up 500% since Nixon declared the war on drugs, and that it continues to rise, and then that isn't changing people's minds. Uh, Findings by maybe the American Medical Association will help, I, I don't know, but I mean, even a couple of years ago, they AMA released a statement saying that uh, they urge marijuana to look into the status of the Schedule 1, but we still can't recommend legalization and whatever. I've read the papers on the subject, and as it states, the AMA still classifies marijuana as a dangerous drug. That's their term. And uh, they also said, as such, we believe it be a serious public health risk. Uh, The AMA recommends that it never be legalized because it poses a health risk, and any health risk is something that doctors aren't going to recommend for obvious reasons. Um, But they are looking into whether or not it's going to be removed as a Schedule 1, depending on research. Not that research. They don't like that research. They want to do their own research conducted by the federal government. No, not the research before from the federal government or the research of various state agencies or the research of various independent scientists. They want new research, 
and more funding to do the research and several laws protecting AMA jobs before they'll even think about doing the research. And also uh, they want money for a lobbyist to get a lobbyist to find them money for the search. These are all in the papers and it's really fucked up. Also, they want legal assurance that they won't be federally prosecuted in the process of implementation, prescription or research, because apparently that keeps happening. Oh, log jam. So basically it's a dead end until we all vote for it and get together. It's a dead end. There are too many federal things in the way blocking the legalization of marijuana or its permanent removal from the Schedule 1 classification system. Marijuana will continue to face an uphill climb due to one thing primarily, and that is stigma. We just can't deal with it. As Americans, as D.A.R.E. graduates, as overprotective parents, we can't deal with the idea of legalizing a drug. We can't seem to shake the notion that's been pounded into our heads since birth. Our sense of superiority needs to vilify drug users and hippies and anyone not like us. The world made monsters out of drugs and, in turn, the users. We need the monsters in jail. We need bad elements to stay out of our neighborhoods. We need to get intoxicated, but in like a classy way, in like a way that we think is cool because people are going to use substances to enjoy or anesthetize themselves regardless it's always going to happen it's always been happening i mean george carlin used to make the joke if humans evolved from monkeys and apes then why do we have monkeys and apes and the answer is pretty much drugs monkeys came down from the trees to combat food scarcity and they had to eat what was on the ground and evidence suggests that there was a genetic mutation thousands of years ago that allowed certain monkeys to eat overripe fruit that had fallen from the trees and fermented because those specific monkeys could metabolize alcohol without it killing them. Those monkeys got food that others didn't. Next thing you know, monkeys out in these streets were like, you know, walking around looking for the boozy nanners. And then those drunk monkeys started drunkenly banging it out with other drunk monkeys. And here we are. And okay, that's reductive. I don't really think that monkeys evolved into humans humans because of alcohol but i am saying that humans have been getting faded since before we were even humans and people will not stop getting faded it's been happening since literally the dawn of mankind studies and anecdotal evidence alike have repeatedly shown that harm reduction is the only way to control the negative consequences of use and abuse of any substance if you allow people access to safe drugs and safer drug procurement methods things will turn out better yes i believe some drugs are more harmful than others and yes i believe the mountain of evidence and my own gut that says cannabis is one of the least harmful drugs available i'm not a doctor but i've seen countless stories of people who have who have used cannabis to great medicinal effect i can myself tell you that the anxiety and insomnia that i live with and have lived with my entire life have been most easily managed with the use of cannabis products under the supervision of an actual doctor under the supervision of an actual dispensary uh, i take a microdose tablet in the morning and i hit an indica dominant vape pen at night and i'm pretty much good i mean i can i can to do a little more for some recreation if i want to chill out a little bit but really that routine combined with a good antidepressant has made my life so much more manageable i i drink far less and i'm far more productive than i've been in a really long time I mean, when I go out, I, I take my more sativa-dominant pen with me. Uh, sativa is the, more, is the brighter, more happy one, right? Um, and I, I have a couple hits, and I'll have maybe a couple drinks over the duration of the evening, and I'm, I'm good. Like, there's no all-night ranting, no cursing at the sun, no found ATM receipts, no getting into strange cars with strange people and walking the L tracks. I mean, at my core, I have to admit this. I, I'm an addict. I've got the gene. 
literally and figuratively. The only real difference between me and what people think of when they hear the word addict is just good fortune. I mean, the only difference between a skid row addict and a high-functioning one like me, in my case, is the fact that I was gifted with high intelligence and people who care about me. And a healthy dose of shame, but we'll get into that later. But intelligence and a support system isn't enough for everyone. Hell, I mean, even an intelligence and a support system isn't something that a lot of people have, quite frankly. I mean, even when I've been stone sober for years at a time, I've been addicted to something. Like, whether that be a writing obsessively or cigarettes or exercise or food or anonymous encounters with well-intentioned strangers. I don't know. Things happen. We have to understand that addiction is a real health problem. And it needs to be treated as such. And that addicts aren't inherently bad people that we need to shuffle off into jail or the gutter because we'd just rather not look at them. Just because you can go out and have a couple beers and a couple bumps in the bathroom and still make it into work on Monday doesn't mean that everyone can. We're all getting messed up on something. And in a perfect world, should none of us ever get impaired at all? Ever? Full stop? I don't know. Maybe. But that's obviously not realistic. Baudelaire said we all got to get drunk on something, and we all are, aren't we? I mean, bottom line, I believe everyone's own body is inviolable and subject to their own will alone. Shout out to the temple for the word of choice assist. Simply put, my body, my choice. Your body, your choice. No one else, especially not some stuffed suit jag bag with a bent ear taking lobbyist payoffs. No one else gets to say anything about what you can and can't do with your body. People do not need to be protected from themselves. They need help when they ask for it, and they need to be left the hell alone the rest of the time. But what if insert substance or object or whatever falls into the hand of a child? Then maybe you should have been paying attention to them in the first place. Oops. It just seems to me that we have bigger problems at hand than than people using quote-unquote illegal drugs. If you want drugs to be illegal, all of them, then they all need to be illegal. I I don't agree, obviously, because I'm a grown-up and a grown-ass man, but I'd rather they all be illegal than this selective dink-and-dunk nonsense. The Lord doesn't want you to smoke pot, but the Lord's cool with wine. It, It doesn't work that way. And we as a country, perhaps as a species, need to demonize something. It's our favorite pastime. We can't stand the idea of people bucking a trend or calling shenanigans on a status quo or, most importantly, having unregulated fun. It's the same reason you hate those motorized scooters popping up all over the place. What? Those people are enjoying themselves in a way that I'm not? And that thing has fewer rules associated with the thing I'm doing? I'm calling my alderman! It's the reason we vilified opium in the 1850s. These Chinese guys that are killing themselves to build the railroads shouldn't also get to enjoy themselves in a way we can't control. Same thing with cocaine and southern black men in the early 1900s, Mexicans in 1910, jazz musicians and non-aristocrats in 1920. It's the same reason white people call the cops on other people trying to have a barbecue in a public park in broad daylight. Or the same reason people wish physical harm on Colin Kaepernick. The way we shame sex workers and swingers and garishly dressed gays. For some reason, we need to turn people into monsters, or clowns, or fodder for the stockade, when what we really should have been doing all along, been minding our own damn business.